are. Hey, I knew it was coming. Uh, my name is Michael Craddock. I have the pleasure of serving as your pastor of Community Life, and uh, it is my joy to open up God's Word with you this morning uh, as we continue our series in the Minor Prophets, and this morning, uh, look at what the Lord has to say uh, to us today uh, through the Micah, through the Micah, through the prophet Micah. Uh, let me invite you to stand if you're able this morning as we turn our eyes uh, to God's Word today uh, and to the particular passage that we will be uh, studying and reflecting on together. Hear what the Lord has to say to us, to you today, uh, through Micah, beginning in chapter 6, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Well, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Father, we thank you this morning that you have spoken. And Lord, I pray this morning that, that you would enable me in the joy and the power of the Spirit uh, to relay your truth to your people for your glory and their good. Amen. Uh, sometimes a gift is not a gift and should not be received as one, no matter how good it might seem. Uh, one of my friends, a fellow pastor, tells the story of a, a husband and a wife who were in a season of pretty intense uh, busyness, lots of demands at work for both of them, and they had just been like passing ships in the night and had missed each other for months and months on end. And eventually the wife, you know, somebody sort of cries uncle, the wife says, you're not seeing me. And the, the husband responds in love and says, I'm so sorry, let's schedule a weekend, we'll be together, we'll do whatever you want, whatever you desire, blank check, every wish is granted, right? Well, as they plan and she makes plans and sets out desires of what they'll do and where they'll be and where they'll go and all the rest, uh, and he's sort of readying himself as the weekend approaches, he's closing down shop for the weekend, preparing for what's ahead, to be with his wife for the intimacy that she's been longing for. And what happens but the phone rings and on the other end is a long lost friend that, that calls him and says, listen, uh, Dave, you're not gonna believe it. Uh, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. I know it's last minute, but I know that you're an avid golfer. I'm an avid golfer. We love to play together and you're not gonna believe it, but I just got a call. There's been a last minute cancellation. I've been on the list for decades you and I can go together this weekend, tomorrow morning. We can fly down, drive down. We can play Augusta National together. 
Now, if you're not a golfer, you don't know what that is. But if you're a golfer, do you know what that is? Yes, you certainly do. And he says to his friend, uh, um, you don't have anything going on this weekend. You can do it, right? And he pauses for a moment. And the quiet still of his heart, he says, yeah, I got nothing going on this weekend. Sounds great. I'll see you tomorrow. Well, as he prepares to go home uh, to the impending storm that will await him, uh, he, as a wise husband, says, you know, this is going to be hard. It's going to be a big time disappointment to her. But, you know, it, I'll soften the blow. Um, I'll go by the store and I'll pick up her favorite perfume. And I'll go to the jewelry store and, and I'll make sure I get the, the nicest diamond bracelet I can possibly afford. And I'll stop by the florist on the way and I'll get a big, beautiful bouquet of flowers and I'll walk through the door and I'll show her how much I love her, right? As I prepare to, to let her down easy. Well, he walks in the door and she sees the flowers spilling out of his arms and she's so excited. Oh, you must love me so much. And I'm so excited that we set aside this time for one another. And he hands her the flowers and he says, well, it's, it's not just flowers. I also, by the way, got this necklace for you. And he pulls out the necklace and she feels so loved and, and so excited. And I pulls out the perfume. Oh, this, this is my favorite fragrance. I can't believe you even remembered. And he says, well, that's not all that I need to give you. And he begins to explain to her how he's not gonna be spending the weekend with her and begin to play golf this weekend. And how does she respond? She takes the necklace, she throws at him. She takes the big flowers, she throws at him. She takes the perfume, she throws at him. And she runs to her bedroom and begins to cry in disappointment. Now, think about this fellow husband's men this morning, okay? If you're a husband. In that moment, what happened? Did she stop to love necklaces? No. Did she stop loving flowers? Answer is no. What happened is she was given a gift that wasn't a gift at all, no matter how good it might seem. That, was, that gift was not a gift. That gift was a bribe in the dressings and the wrappings of a gift. Because ultimately what she wanted was not a gift at all. She didn't want a necklace. She didn't want flowers. She didn't want perfume. She wanted him. She wanted intimacy. And if you can understand that illustration this morning, then there's a pretty good chance that you're going to be able to understand the message of Micah that the Lord has for us this morning. Uh, Micah is a prophet in the uh, late 8th century, comes to the people of God in the southern kingdom, also prophesied to the northern kingdom, but primarily to the southern kingdom. And it's, the, it's a time where the people uh, believe that they can appease God by giving him whatever they want through the rituals of religious um, obligation. They can give sacrifices, they can offer worship, they can show up as the people of God and, and go through the motions and yet live however they want. And as the Lord comes through the prophet Micah, like all of the prophets, the minor prophets that we've studied together, God is coming to warn them of judgment, that he's gonna destroy the southern kingdom, that he's gonna bring judgment on the northern kingdom, that he's gonna bring his discipline to correct them because what the Lord wants from them is them. He wants all of them, their intimacy, Summarized in three ways. He wants the actions of their life. He wants the affections of their hearts. He wants the dependence of their lives as he comes to them. Look at what the Lord says to them this morning again in Micah 6, 8, where the Lord speaks and says, Has he told you, O man, what is good? What does the Lord require you of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with 
your God. What does the Lord want from, from us? What does it look like to give God ourselves this morning? Well, it's to give God and to love him with our actions. What well, Micah here in Micah 6, 8 says, to do justice. Now, that, that's a phrase that perhaps is lost on you this morning or, or lost on me uh, this past week as I was trying to wrap my head around the, the call to do justice as I studied this passage in preparation for this sermon. Sometimes when we think of justice, we think of justice as being done. That justice is that thing that the judge delivers at the courthouse. When a criminal comes before the judge and is sentenced and condemned and gets the punishment that he finally deserves. But biblically, judgment, the justice of God is not less than that, but it's always more than that. Justice, the Hebrew word mishpat, is the righteousness that we are called to practice in relationship to every other person around us. It's, it's the way in which God calls us to love our neighbor. And we're called to love our neighbor in every sphere of life, in the sphere of government, of finance, of our neighbors, our bosses, our employees, our, our wives, our spouses, our brothers, our sisters, our friends. In every sphere of life, justice is innately relational. It's the righteousness that we practice in relationship to other people. And if we look throughout the book of Micah, what we see is that they are being called to do justice because what they are practicing is injustice in every sphere of life, and in particular in the sphere of life that we think of today as the financial sector of real estate. Look back with me at Micah uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, where the Lord points out their sin and their lack of justice. There the Lord proclaims through Micah and says this, "'Woe to, you, to those who devise wickedness, "'who work evil on their beds, "'and when the morning dawns, they perform it, "'because it's in the power of their hands to do so.'" Well, what is it that they're doing? Verse two, they covet fields and they seize them and houses and they take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Now it's, it's really hard uh, for us to wrap our hands around what it is that Micah is getting at here. And, and I just wanna name that for you this morning. I'm not sure, I, I am honestly not sure how helpful I can be for you this morning in trying to translate what that looked like then to what it looks like now. But I'll try to do the best job I possibly can to tell you what it looked like then. Uh, in the, the people of the nation of Israel, the people of God were set up as a theocracy. So you had this today in America, we talk about the separation of what? The separation of church and, okay, good. A lot of you are, yeah, we're big for that, okay? But in ancient Israel, the people of God, they didn't have separation of church and state. They had church, state, nexus as many biblical scholars summarize it. They had a theocracy with God as the king, with a human king, kingly representative, with the prophets who were supposed to remind the people of God what the word of God said, with the priests who were supposed to offer up sacrifices for the people of God who would fall short, with rulers who were supposed to rule the people of God with the word of God, and everything was just blended together in sort of this church-state nexus. And within that church-state nexus, this nation of Israel, uh, the word of God regulated uh, the real estate world in a very practical way. Uh, if you look back in places like Numbers chapter 26, Leviticus chapter 25, you don't have to do that now. You're certainly welcome to tune me out and to do that uh, right now if you'd like to. But what you see is that as God gathered his people out of, uh, out of Egypt as slaves and began to, to uh, plant them 
in, in the promised land that he had prepared for them, he would distribute the land among the tribes of God's people according to their number. And so in Numbers, chapter 26, God is looking at every single tribe and counting them. It's just a whole lot of names, a whole lot of lists. And the purpose for those lists is to figure out how many people are in each tribe and then to give them a place to live that they can farm, that they can start a life, that they can have a living. And the way in which that land given to them is described was with the important word that is called inheritance. The land that they were given was not given for them to give away. It was given to them for their, in, their inheritance as they live before the Lord. It's a gift given to them to be stewarded by them for God, for his glory and for their good. And so that land was to remain within their families. Even if they were to, to sell parts of it because they, they were, were struggling, they could only sell it for a season and then every 50 years, that land was to go back to them at this amazing concept called the year of Jubilee. But what we see here in the book of Micah, in the, the transactions of the real estate world of the people of God, is that people were taking from other people that which was never theirs to give away. They would see a widow in distress who had land, or perhaps her, her husband had died, and she was struggling to farm it. She was struggling to, to make a living. And so what they would do is they would say, we see that you're really on hard times. What we would love to do is to take your land and to buy it from you at an enormous discount. And then, by the way, never give it back. Sound good? Well, it doesn't sound good. But if your back is up against the wall and you feel like you have no other options, what are you gonna do? Where else are you gonna go? But welcome that which is really taking advantage of you as a gift to just try to get by. Well, what is that? That's injustice. Why? Because it's using people in the world of real estate in a way that God had said, this is not how we do things here. You're taking advantage of them in their moment of distress for your own gain and your own greed and your own good and your own wealth and never giving it back. Now, when you see injustice in the world and you're, you're living for yourself, the last thing you ever wanna do is have someone else in your ear telling you that you're doing the wrong thing, right? It's the last thing you want. And so there's a breakdown between their living the truth and also their hearing the truth. If you look with me uh, at the next uh, section here, Micah chapter 3, if you're in chapter 2, uh, look just a few verses later. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2 first, where, where uh, Micah says this, If a man should go about and utter winds, wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. You see, what they wanted is, is somebody who would just blow smoke, blow wind, speak lies, say, eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow you die. Do whatever you want, the Lord doesn't care. Micah says, that would be the preacher for this generation. These people don't wanna hear someone that speaks the truth to them. They wanna continue to be able to do what they wanna do, whatever profits them and never feel bad about it. And so you've got a breakdown, not only of the financial sector, but of the religious sector as well, as they ignore and welcome in prophets who would enable them to do whatever they want. Look again at chapter three, verse five. 
Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. What is it that Mike is saying? Well, he's painting a picture of the prophets in that day, just like the preachers in this day, the, the ministers, the Levites and the priests who are set up, the prophets who ministered among God's people depended on the greater people of God for their livelihood, just like ministers do today that aren't bivocational. They're depending on the giving of those around them to enable them to carry out their ministry, to support their families, to practice their livelihoods. And so what is it that Micah is saying they're doing? They're saying, look, if you come to me and you bless me and you scratch my back and you're a big giver, then I'll say peace to you. But if you come to me and you can't feed me, you've got, you're not giving me anything to eat, well, then I'm gonna speak a word of judgment on you. Do you see the, the complexity of corruption across every sphere of society? Do you see that? The financial sector, the religious sector, the prophets, the priests, the rulers, the people across the board, there's a breakdown of justice. To live the truth, we have to hear the truth. To hear the truth, someone has to speak the truth. And it was the case then, just as it's the case now. And as we come to the New Testament, Paul writes uh, to his protege, Timothy, in chapter 4, verses 2 and 4, and says this to Timothy. Timothy, preach the word. Be ready. In season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? Well, verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears that they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander off into myths. Proverbs 27, verse 6 says this, Faithful are the wounds of a, of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. You know, one of the things that we need the most in the world is, is we, we need to live out the truth of God's word. We need it. We need it to, to the, the justice of God, the righteousness of God that calls us to relate to other people a certain way, to love our neighbors as ourselves. We need that to permeate the way that we treat other kids in our classes at school and our coworkers at work and our neighbors around us whether you're on the island in Bluffton, whatever part of the low country that you're in. We need righteousness to permeate our marketplace interactions with one another, with the contracts that we create. We need it. And when we don't do it, what we desperately need is other people to speak up against us, to call us back into conformity when our hearts wander astray. Isn't that what you need? It's what I need. But in our sinfulness, our temptation, oftentimes when we wander, is just to surround ourselves with an echo chamber of people who will just pat us on the back and say, it's okay. God loves you anyway. Don't worry about it. You're not as bad as you think. You're not as bad as the next guy. You're, you're just going to be fine. As a pastor, uh, man, I, I feel this acutely. Um, but I've, I've come to the conviction that I've developed over the years. And the reality is, is as a pastor, I can't do my job unless I'm willing to lose my job. Do you understand what that means? Because the, the truth is the danger of every time somebody, a, a communicator of God's word, whether that's a friend, a spouse, a neighbor, a pastor, 
whenever we communicate truth that other people need to hear, they can, they can respond one of two ways, can't they? They can respond and the Spirit convicts them and they're broken and they repent and they say, I'm sorry, and they want to move forward with new steps of obedience, right? Or they can say, I don't like you. I don't want you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move and move away from you. And the reality is the Lord, whether it's the pastor of a church or you in a personal relationship this morning, what the Lord has called you and I to is the same. It's to live out righteousness, whether it's in the practice of our life or whether it's in being the communicator of words that might be wounds that actually bring healing because they lead us to repentance or the recipient of those same wounds as well. God wants us. He wants us to hear the truth, to speak the truth, to live the truth. He wants us to live out his righteousness in the actions of our lives. And he doesn't just want us to go through the motions. He wants our actions, but he also wants our affections as well. Look what Micah says. What have I required of you, O man, but to do justice and to love kindness? Now, some of your translations this morning, they won't just say love kindness. What will they say? But to love mercy. That word translated mercy is an an important word. Translated kindness in the ESV, translated mercy elsewhere, places like the NIV or older translations. It's the idea of of showing grace to someone else who doesn't deserve it. It's often translated as the idea in the Bible of covenant faithfulness. When I was a a kid growing up, I don't know, perhaps uh, you played this game. Uh, How many of you ever played the game mercy? Raise your hand. All right, a couple of you. Uh, Mercy is is one of those interesting games that's, I'm sure, outlawed now in schools all across the land, Um, and and probably for good reason. But mercy was a game where where two people would line up, uh, and you would interlock your hands like this, and the goal of mercy was to demonstrate who was the strongest. And so what you would do is you would grab their fingers, grab their hands, and you would try to twist this way uh, to bend their their wrists back as far as you possibly could until it would hurt just enough that they would cry out in anguish and they would say, mercy, right? Which meant, I don't want to go to the hospital and get in trouble with my mom, right? That's kind of what that meant. Now, the idea of mercy is that the stronger party is showing grace to the weaker party when he could show even greater strength and break them. That's the concept of mercy, When we call it covenant faithfulness, the the historical background that's behind that is you would have one kingdom with a greater king, with a stronger army, with greater strength that could crush another nation. And yet the nation would come to it and say, I want to enter into a covenant relationship. That's a relationship where we have a contract with one another where I understand that you're stronger and I'm weaker, that you're greater and and I'm not, and I need your protection and your strength. And so I'm gonna declare my dependence and my allegiance to you in hopes that if anyone ever tries to attack me and come after me, and I have an enemy that comes after me, that you will show your strength and you will show mercy and you will protect me and be faithful to this covenant and protect me. Now, when God proclaims through the prophet Micah, what is he saying? He's saying, I want you to give me your actions. I want you to do justice, but I want you, as you do justice, to love kindness. Because many times when you're doing justice, when you're interacting with other people, 
in every sphere of your life, what you're gonna recognize is that you're gonna have moments where you're stronger and they're weaker. Where if you wanted to, you absolutely could take advantage of the situation to your own good. And in your sinful nature, that's what you would do. But I want you to do justice because you love kindness. You see, justice is the action, kindness, faithfulness, mercy is the attitude. And why would we do that? Why would, why would the people of God, in dealings with their neighbor, when other people that are down on their luck not take advantage? Or not take advantage, why would a Christian car salesman not take advantage of a person that walks on the lot and has no idea what their car is worth as they prepare for a trade-in? Why would they do that? Or why would a, a, a Christian real estate broker enter in and protect a client uh, who's trying to buy a property for, from someone who has no idea what their house is actually worth and can take total advantage of them? Why would they do that? Well, they would do that because they would do justice and they would do it because they love kindness. Why? Well, if you look at the very first seven verses of Micah 6, God reminds them, he calls the people of Israel to account and he reminds them of the history of grace of what God has done to them. In verses one and two, it's, it's like the scene of a courtroom and God has called the mountains to be on the witness stand, to testify to the way in which God has related to his people. And then verse three and four and following, God begins to recount the story of his grace towards them saying, oh my people, what have I done to you? Verse four, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. What is God saying? He's saying, remember my grace towards you. That in your weakness, when you were down, when you were enslaved, when you had a Pharaoh who was crushing you, what did I do? I grabbed you and I showed you my what? My mercy, my covenant faithfulness, where I entered into a relationship with you not because of your strength, but because of my strength, because of my love for you and my commitment to you. I showed you mercy. Therefore, do justice. And as you do justice, even in the greatest grumblings of your heart, do it because you love mercy, because I have shown you mercy. And as you show mercy, as you live out this justice and this mercy paradigm and you strive forward. How do you do it? Well, you do it by walking humbly with our God. What does that mean? It's a life of actions, of affections, but lastly this morning, also of dependence. When we walk humbly with the, with the Lord, many of uh, commentators comment on this word uh, that we translate humbly, and they, they use a word a lot of us probably don't use. They use the word circumspectly. How many of you used that this past week? Oh, you know, I'm just circumspectly walking around the neighborhood, right? Probably not. Well, when you're circumspect, you're reflective. You're walking with the Lord in such a way that you've got both proximity, but also intimacy. You're with the Lord, but you're intimate with him. Why? Because you're thinking about what God has done for you. You know, in our culture today, there's been over the last four or five years, and I'm not gonna belabor this point this morning. I mean, I could get in hot water and get fired fast, which if I take my own medicine, that's probably maybe a good thing. But um, in, our, in our day and age, the last five or six years, 
man, the words justice and social are said a lot. Have you heard that? Um, and they're combined in different ways. And, and there, are, there are folks in the world, and this is, not, this is not positive nor negative, but I want you to hear this through the lens of the gospel, right? There, there are people who rightly recognize the lack of justice in the world. They see injustice, and they see it in lots of places, and they want to they wanna mobilize and activate people, God's people and, and not God's people. And they want to activate you and mobilize you to action. They want to see um, rights, uh, wrongs righted. They want to get you involved and to see justice permeate every sphere of society. And let, let, me say, let me say this, that is a good thing if it's done according to God's word, okay? But often great calls for justice are also not accompanied by great humility. And that's just a pastoral observation. There's lots of people that would say, do justice, do justice, do justice. Maybe love kindness, but they're not saying, they're not beating the drum and walk humbly with your God. But here's why I believe that God is so intentional in bringing those three chords together in the stream of his grace. Because the reality is, is I go out to do justice and I wanna go do justice and I wanna go change the world and I wanna act you know, and love my neighbor really well. You know, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna screw up and I'm gonna sin. Micah's name uh, translated, uh, Micah's name is actually a question. And the question is this, who is like Yahweh? Yahweh is the personal name of God that we find in the Old Testament, places like Exodus chapter three. Who is like the Lord? That's what his name implies. And it's amazing to me that the way in which Micah begins introducing the book with his own name is also the way in which it ends. If you look at chapter seven, verse 18, Micah makes explicit what his name implies when he asks this in verse 18 of chapter 7. Micah asks us this morning, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in covenant faithfulness, steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all of our sins in the depth of the sea. For you show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. And you have sworn to our fathers from the day of old. What is that? God does justice. He loves faithfulness. And when we remember that, what do we do? We walk humbly with our God because we recognize, Lord, there is none like you. Perhaps this morning you hear this message and it's going to radically change your life in ways that I can't even comprehend. I was talking with a friend this past week and, you know, how are you feeling about Micah? And I was like, man, this is a, I don't, I don't understand the world of real estate well enough to know necessarily how to apply this in lots of ways. But the Holy Spirit does. And my hope and prayer for you and for me this morning is we would hear God's word and we would sit under it and the Lord would help us to be a people who do justice and that we would love kindness And as we do justice and as we love kindness, brothers and sisters and friends this morning, we will fail. Because who is like the Lord? Not me and not you. But the great news is what? But he is. And he loves us this morning.